Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comfort and our cares. These beautiful words were written in the 17th century by John Fawcett. He was orphaned when he was 12 years old. Largely self-educated and initially working as a tailor, he was converted at the age of 16 and went on to have a wonderful ministry for 52 years. Come, let us pray together with kindred minds. Lord God, source of all goodness and love, we give you glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Triune Lord, wondrous community of infinite love, as we come to prayer this morning, awaken in each of us praise and thankfulness. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you as creator of all things and the sustainer of all life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to this earth in human form, to gaze upon this world with human eyes and to suffer the horrors of the cross. We rejoice that today we can declare that you are alive in your risen glory. Holy Spirit, we recognise that you indwell us, guiding us towards the Father's love and purposes for our lives. God, as we come together in prayer, we acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for your forgiveness. We thank you that you accept us and forgive us. Help us to be accepting and forgiving of others, especially those close to us who may have caused us pain. God of compassion, you hear the cries of all those who are in trouble and distress. Accept our prayers for those whose lives are affected by tragedy, storms, earthquakes, flooding. At this time we think particularly of the people of Turkey and Syria. Strengthen them in this hour of need. Grant them perseverance and courage to face the future. Lord, in the midst of the destruction and upheaval they are facing, may many come to know you as the firm foundation on which to build their lives. God of compassion, we bring before you the homeless and displaced. We pray for the many, many refugee situations in our world. We struggle to understand the hardships faced by those forced to leave their homes and literally flee for their lives. Draw near and comfort them. Bless those who work tirelessly to provide them with shelter, food and friendship. God of compassion, enlighten and challenge those who possess power and money. May they avoid indifference and show generosity and care to those who are suffering in so many places around our world. God of love, show us our place in this world. May we be channels of your love and truly understand how we can help those in difficulty, both locally and overseas, knowing that no one is forgotten in your sight. Lord, we pray for one another. Grant each of us strength and a deep and growing understanding of your presence. 
May we each be rooted and grounded in love, able to comprehend the width and length and depth and height of your love for us, knowing that you do exceedingly above all things we ask or even think, according to your power working within us. Lord, we ask you to fill us each with the knowledge of your will. Give us wisdom and spiritual understanding. Help us to walk worthy and fully pleasing before you. Help us to be fruitful in good works as we increase in our knowledge of your love. We give you the glory and the honour for all that you're doing in our lives every day, even in the times we can't see or understand your ways. Lord, shine your light in us and through us and over us. May we make a difference in this world for your glory and purposes. Set your way before us and empower us to reflect your peace and hope to a world that so desperately needs your presence and healing. Lord, we pray for all church leaders, the leaders of our own fellowship, the leaders of other local churches and the leaders of churches worldwide. Give them your wisdom and discernment. May their faith in you be unwavering. We pray that their hearts will be directed first to you, for they will recognise where their true help and strength come from. We ask that you guard their coming and their going, that they may, that you may be their refuge and their peace. We pray that you surround each one with wise counsel, that they may be humble and kind, patient and loving, and through their actions and words. Lord, we pray for families, particularly those in our fellowship and those going through difficult times. May parents be given wisdom and strength, patience and discernment to nurture their children and direct them in your ways. As a fellowship, help us to contribute to the raising of God-fearing children who will grow and mature to be strong men and women of faith. Lord, you have given each of us the gift of life, from conception to natural death. We acknowledge the wonders and blessings of life. We pray that the sanctity of human life is protected. May all people of whatever age be respected and shown dignity. As we consider the wonder of life, we pray for those struggling with unplanned pregnancy. May they find support and acceptance particularly within the wider church community. Lord, thank you for never leaving us. You are our right hand, and for that we're so grateful. We pray that your praise will continually be on our lips, in good times and bad. Though the earth may shake and the rains may come, may we not be shaken in our faith. Surround us with the abundance of your love and grace. Help us to be beacons of light and hope to others around us. In the words of another hymn writer, So be it, Lord, your throne shall never, like earth's proud empires, pass away. Your kingdom stands and grows forever, until there dawns your glorious day. To him be the power and the glory and the honour forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for leading us, Anthony. As you're praying just there at the end, I was just reminded of an idea that came to mind last year. And, you know, so much work goes into even just preparing the prayer that sometimes it just goes over our heads. And 
be great to listen to some prayers again, I think. So it would be awesome to compile the corporate prayers that happen in the life of the church and put it into a book so that we can distribute it to each other and we can read those prayers over and over and be blessed by them. So if someone wants to do that, that would be good. (laughs) That would be awesome. Morning, everyone. Uh, it's, it's great to be together as church. Oh, I kind of feel like I need to lean this way a bit to kind of make up for the fact that all the kids have gone out from this side. But it's wonderful to have you. And if you're online watching, uh, again, welcome to you. Uh, particular welcome. Jenny Pope, I know you watch week to week. Hello to you. Uh, we just want to just share our love with you as, as you watch uh, online as well. Uh, we are in the middle of a teaching series on the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles out, we are encouraging you to have that open to follow along. And that would be good. But before we do that, can we, can we just pray again? Join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Dr. Luke who compiled uh, this historic document detailing the, uh, the flow of your message from, from Jesus' death out into the world. And Lord, we are inspired by these words and we just pray that as we sit under it, Lord, that you'd speak to us. Lord, we pray for your spirit to come. We pray for, for revival in our church, in our land. We pray that we would fully know you more, that we would be changed from the inside out, transformed by the power of your word and by your spirit, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we get into the text this morning, I just want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever looked back on your life and remembered a situation that just seemed so normal so bland, so everyday, that after looking back, you can actually see the hand of God at work in that situation. Maybe situation after situation after situation that just seems so normal and so everyday, every a normal sort of circumstance in life, this normal happening, a meeting with a person, uh, being somewhere at a certain time. And in that natural process of life, as you look back, you can see this thread of God's hand at work in your life, moving you, directing you, encouraging you, caring for you in the midst of those normal circumstances. Anyone have situations like that? I'm sure many of you have, as do I. Um, we might, though, have that, what about that one thing? Come on, Lord. <laughs> what about that one situation? Maybe we're still waiting for an answer for that one. But that aside, what, what I just described there is actually a word that we would call providence. I want to speak about providence this morning. Providence is a word that we should get to know because it's a wonderful word. It's, it's a word that describes how God supernaturally works behind the scenes to bring about his purposes in our lives. Now, it's different from the miraculous. The miraculous is where there are natural laws, natural circumstances that happen, and God supersedes those natural laws uh, with his supernatural world. So 
Jesus walking on water. The natural laws say that a human can't be supported by water, but Jesus walks on water, and so that is a miraculous thing. Uh, the miraculous is different from providence. Providence is where normal, everyday happenings are used behind the scenes supernaturally by God to bring you to a place, to bring you to a point where he desires you to be, where he wills for you to be in your life. So, and, you know, we can, you can look up the dictionary, if you like, for lots of different um, uh, things of this, this word, but I liked uh, this one that I came across in the, uh, last week. So Jerry Bridges, uh, a pastor, says, God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over his creation. We saw that in the, the kids' spot story this morning, didn't we? His absolute rule over creation and his constant care for us. But it's not just for us and our purposes, but it's for his glory, for God's glory to be shown that he is at work, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-loving, that he does work in our, our world. And we have books in the Old Testament. The book of Esther is really devoted to this whole concept of providence, the name of the Lord isn't mentioned in that book at all, and yet the whole theme of that story is the way that God works behind natural circumstances to bring about his purposes. The story of Joseph happens to be one of my favourite in the, in the Old Testament. is another great example. Here's Joseph, and normal things happen to him. His brothers hate him. They throw him in a pit. That's not good, is it? They... They, say, they put him into slavery. Uh, he gets taken away. He, he lives a life as a slave. He gets falsely accused of something, and because of that, he gets thrown in prison. And when he's in prison, so it happens to be that in prison are the cupbearers to the king, and he interprets dreams, and then the king has it, the pharaoh has a, has a dream, and they, they get Joseph to come back. To Ultimately, all of these happenings happen because God wants to get Joseph to be prime minister of Egypt so that when the famine happens, the family of Israel are saved. If those bad things didn't happen to Joseph, then Israel, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, would have died out. And so God's providence is at work. And so providence is probably best looked as you look backwards on your life as you, and you see that God's hand at work. In fact, I came across this quote that says, the providence of God is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. <laughs> Isn't that true? So we are um, in, in the story of uh, how the message went out from, from Jerusalem ultimately to Rome. And I talk about Providence, because this chapter, chapter 23, which we're up to, doesn't really advance any great theological concept or um, you know, doctrine. Yes, Paul talks about the resurrection. Maybe we could glean something from that. But there's no speech. There's no sermon. There's no uh, um, unpacking of the Old Testament. Um, really, this chapter is a great example of the providence of God in Paul's life. And from that, I want to draw out some things for us as we live our lives today. But before we get to that, we 
just to remind ourselves, we were at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, once again sent out from Antioch, spent a lot of time in Ephesus. And last week we talked about his journey into Jerusalem and what happened to him there in Jerusalem because he had a heart to, to preach to his people. He had a desire to get there, but when he got there, things didn't go too well. And we left last week um, and we, we skipped out the part where Paul is being beaten to try and get a confession out of him. And he pulls out his, well, it's not a, I was going to say get out of jail free card, but it wasn't a get out of jail free card because he ended up in jail. Um, but he, he pulled out a, I'm a Roman citizen because the, the Roman citizen couldn't, couldn't be beaten. There were certain rights that Roman citizens had. And so the commander realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and thought, oh, I can get in trouble for this. I better stop, stop this. But the commander is still trying to charge Paul with something. So these two riots are broken out in Jerusalem. The religious elite are angry at Paul. Um, they're saying, you know, we want to kill him. And so the, the Roman commander, uh, he's tried to save him. He's pulled him into the fortress. And, but he's trying to get out of Paul what is wrong with the situation in order to charge him with something. And he's asked the people, and the people have said one thing and another. He hasn't got anything out of them. He's tried to beat him up to get a confession. He hasn't got anything out of them. So then at the end of the last chapter, and it's probably where chapter 23 should start, it has these words. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews because it's his job to kind of charge him with something. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before him. So the Sanhedrin were the same group of uh, religious leaders who, uh, who Jesus stood before, mainly made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. There was another group of uh, Jews called the Essenes, but they were off in the, the desert like monks. And this uh, Sanhedrin were there to rule and to make uh, just laws over the Jewish people and to, to make sense of what was happening. But normally, the Sanhedrin would meet in the hall in the, um, in the temple, in the temple courts. And at the moment, Paul was actually in the barracks, which were kind of on the side of the temple. The barracks were there in order for the, the Romans during the time of the festivals to, to make sure no riots break out. They could see what was happening down there. And the commander's thinking to himself, you know what, if I send Paul along the back into the Jerusalem courtyard where all the people are and they're wanting to beat him up, something's probably going to happen to him. So he does something that's unusual and he invites the Sanhedrin to him. And so the Sanhedrin are there and they're all congregating. And so that, that's the fortress on the side um, where the Romans would be and that's where Paul is going to end up in prison later on. And so Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. So here's his trial before his Jewish leaders. And so often Paul looked intently or he looked straight. Have you ever noticed that throughout the book of Acts? He's, he's got his eye on them, right? <laughs> he looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers. Now that is not the way you address the Sanhedrin. You would say, My fathers and my elders as a sign of respect. But Paul says, my brothers. And it's 
And I find that fascinating because he himself, remember, was a Pharisee. And it's potentially he himself sat on the Sanhedrin. And so he's, he's looking around at these people. There might be some classmates <laughs> as he grew up studying under Gamaliel, the, the Jewish uh, uh, rabbi. He might be seeing some classmates and, and, and he's like, hey, brothers, here's another opportunity to finally convince his friends and his Jewish people about who Jesus is, the Jewish Messiah. Brothers, I've fulfilled my duty to God in all conscience to this day. So he just starts talking. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Okay, so not going off to a good start here, are we? (laughs) Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, law, yet you yourself violate the, violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Bit, bit out of character for Paul, maybe, maybe not. But he's been struck. So, so Paul's basically saying, hey, you as, as, as a high priest, you, there are certain laws. And one of those laws is that it's a bit like today, someone's not, um, guilty until proven innocent. That that was in the Jewish law. And so you're presuming that I am guilty and that I can be punished for it. And before I've had my chance to to say what's going on, you're assuming that I am am guilty and therefore you're breaking the law. But I gotta I gotta say I love his response. That's that's the kind of the flesh in me. That's the rebel in me. It's like, yeah, come on, go Paul, you whitewashed wall. Now, <laughs> Jesus himself said very similar things to the Pharisees. He called the Pharisees a bunch of whitewashed tombs. But Paul, I think, here is going back to Ezekiel. He was a, he was a, a person who knew the, the Old Testament off by heart. And in Ezekiel, if you want to maybe later on today, read Ezekiel 13. Prophet Ezekiel talks about whitewashed walls in terms of false prophets who are going to come. And they're a badly built wall. They're flimsy, but they try and make themselves look good on the outside. And in the same way that Ezekiel and I think Paul and Jesus talk about this sense of whitewashed walls is, is you know, it, we can try and make ourselves look good on the outside. But really, it's what's on the inside that matters. We can be rotting away like tombs on the inside and trying to pretend that we look good on the outside. And so Paul's saying to him, man... God's going to strike down you, you whitewashed wall. You're horrible. And he was true because Ananias, the, um, the Jewish historian Josephus, tells us this was a violent, corrupt, uh, rude, horrible high priest. And the Jewish people actually hated Ananias. Yet Ananias here is found himself as the high priest and he's acting not as a high priest should. He took the tithes for the priests and took them for himself and used them as bribes for the Romans. So this is a guy who's in office, is in leadership, yet he doesn't have the character of a leader. And so Paul's actually calling him out because he says, I've lived in good conscience before God compared to you, Ananias, who aren't. And so he's, he's calling him out. So he, it's not going off to a good start. So Paul's getting struck, Ananias, they're having, having a go at each other. But those who are standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? 
And Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was a high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Interesting reply from Paul. How did Paul not know that Ananias was a high priest? Yet, once he realises his sin, he admits his fault and he, and he apologises. And he, he comes back to the biblical point that we should honour those who have a position of leadership. And he says, well, I didn't realise he was the high priest because it says don't speak evil about them. And so it should be with us. We should not speak ill of those who are in leadership, but Jesus said to pray for them and to honour them. And so Paul lives out this. But a couple of reasons perhaps why Paul didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. Some people might say, well, this is sarcasm because it's like, well, I didn't know he was a high priest because a high priest wouldn't act like that. A high priest wouldn't tell me to be struck in, in disobeying the law. That's one, perhaps, answer. Another answer would be the fact that the Sanhedrin was brought to the fortress meant that the high priest potentially wasn't wearing his robes that um, identified him as the royal priest. They're just sort of standing around in their, their thongs and T-shirt or whatever. And so he's like, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest because he's not wearing his robes. Another reason would be it's been 20 years since Paul has been in Jerusalem, has been Paul has been part of the Sanhedrin. And after 20 years, people get old and it's hard to recognise them. Maybe, maybe that's the case. But most probably, and probably the reason why Paul stared at them was that Paul had an eye problem. Uh, Paul had a, an eye problem. It says in Galatians 4, that when, when Paul uh, came to them, that he had a physical infirmity and that the Galatians would want to pluck out their own eyes for Paul. So, and then later on in that same uh, letter to Galatians, Paul says, look at, the, the, at what big letters I write with. He's not talking about the, the letter of Galatians being a long letter because it's a short letter, but He's writing in, in, in big letters, again, maybe because he needs to sort of see, see a bit better. So maybe he couldn't actually see across the room that this was Ananias. But one, one thing remains, he respected the office of the high priest and apologised. Now, Paul, I'm sure, is thinking, I am not going to get a fair trial. They're all out to get me. And I believe that that God gives Paul the spirit of wisdom, as he has done many times throughout his, his travels. And he looks at the Sanhedrin and he goes, Aha, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the heat off of myself and get the heat onto these guys. And so when Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. 
the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, whilst they agreed on certain things, the Sadducees were a bit, a bit like the uh, very liberal in their understanding and, and the Pharisees, Pharisees believed, believed in spirits, they believed in the resurrection, they believed in the whole of the Old Testament. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of that, they only believed in the first five books of the Torah. And so there was a, a dis- theological difference between Sadducees and, Fa- and Pharisees. And so Paul could see that and thought, right, I'm going to talk about the resurrection of the dead. And as soon as that happened, uproar. And now they're at each other. Now they're, <laughs> now they're violent and they're throwing punches at each other. I wonder what the commander's thinking at this point in time. Oh, the crowd doesn't know what's wrong with him. I've flogged him. I can't do that. I've got the religious leaders together in a small room. Let's discuss this and find out what's going on. And now they're having a punch up. What am I going to do? And so there was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law of the Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. So much so was their hatred of each other's sects that they're now not concentrating on Paul and they're concentrating on each other. And the Pharisees say, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. And what if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? They're talking about how when Paul was talking about his testimony that Jesus had appeared to him. And so a dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces and he ordered that the troops take him down away and led him by force into the barracks. So things are going from bad to worse for Paul. He had a heart to, to preach to his people, for them to come to faith. Uh, they are rejecting the message of Christ they are rejecting him. Uh, really, this is Luke's uh, example of how now finally Christianity breaks away from Judaism because the Jews have finally rejected Paul and the message here. Paul desired to come and now is finding himself locked up in prison in chains and wondering what's going to happen next. Now, I am sure that Paul would have been remembering the disciples entire, saying, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. He's remembering the prophet that came and and took his belt off and bound him up and said, this is what's going to happen. And I wonder if he's thinking, should I have actually gone through with this? He's at a low point. He's discouraged. He's there in prison. has to wait the next day. And then this happens. The following night, there he is, discouraged, low, crisis. The Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to me in Rome. I want to pause here in the chapter because... At this point, there is so much to talk about with these particular verses. First of all, Jesus affirms that it was God's will for for Paul to be in Jerusalem. Do you remember a couple of chapters back, it was like, well, was Paul being disobedient in, in going to Jerusalem when he was told not to? 
Jesus here is actually affirming that he was to speak in Jerusalem. So let's, let's clear that one up all <laughs> from first and foremost. Secondly, it is not Paul's responsibility for the fruit. It was his responsibility to testify. And it's the same with you and I in our lives. We're not responsible for the fruit of our testimony or for the fruit of the message of Christ for evangelism. We're just told to do it. And Paul, wherever he went on his missionary journeys, he was faithful in testifying to the risen Lord Jesus. And God brought about the fruit in every single city that he was at. And yes, there was also other (laughs) things against him. And now when he comes to Rome, yes, you might think, well, there's there's no fruit in terms of faith, but he was faithful in, in testifying. And Jesus says to him, as you are faithful to me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Now, at those words, Rome, I'm sure Paul's ears would have pricked up. Because where's the one place he so desired to go, apart from Jerusalem? He wrote about it when he wrote to the Romans. I so desire to get to Rome and to Spain after that. If God willing lets me go, I I long to go to Rome. And now Jesus is appearing to him and saying, you're going to testify me in Jerusalem and also in Rome. (gasps) Rome? Awesome. But then there's a question. I'm in chains. (laughs) I'm in prison how on earth am I going to get to Rome? This is where the providence of God kicks in. God is going to use these natural circumstances, these natural happenings to bring Paul to where he desires him to be for his will to happen. Five times in Paul's life, Jesus appears to him. And in each five times, it's at a time of crisis. Acts chapter 9 there's a time of crisis. Paul's a, Saul is about to go to Damascus and, and kill some Christians, and the Lord appears to him. He falls down, and, and Jesus converts Paul at that point. So that's the first time. In Asia, remember in Acts chapter 16, when all the doors were closed, all the doors were shut, and he was getting discouraged. He's like, where do I go? How, I want to present the message and everything's been shut before him and he gets a vision of a a man from Macedonia to come over and at the end of that he concludes that the Lord has spoken to me. So the Lord was in that vision. The third time he's in Corinth, again incredibly discouraged, incredibly let down by the, the, the fruit not happening and the Lord says exactly the same thing to him as he does here in prison. He says, He says, cheer up, Paul, and speak up. Continue to speak up, Paul. Acts chapter 23, where we are now, he appears to him, and we're going to get to Acts chapter 27 on a boat. It's going to have some storms and some things happening, and the Lord is again going to appear to him in a crisis. The Lord appeared to Paul in his times of need, in his times of crisis. Are you in a time of crisis in your life right now? Are you feeling discouraged right now? Do you have things going on in your life, whether it be you know, a, a health issue, whether it be a financial issue, a relationship issue? Have you got a job issue? 
that you're dealing with right now. Maybe you're the only person that knows about it. Can I encourage you that Jesus turns up in your time of crisis? That he speaks in your time of crisis? I was so blessed by that video the kids had when the disciples are crying out saying, don't you care? And the author said, of course I care. What a silly thing to say to Jesus. And you might be thinking in your time of crisis, do you even care, Lord? Do you even care what's going on? Of course he cares. He died for you. That's how much he loves you. But so often it's in these times of crisis that he wants to speak. So allow the Lord to speak to you, even right now as as I speak, as we sing the next song, that he wants to encourage you. Cheer up. Cheer up, Paul, but cheer up you. (laughs) I love you. I've got you. And you may not understand what's happening right now. And you may be praying for a miracle and it may not be happening. But just wait. Just trust. Just wait. And like that Hebrew word, there's going to be a time you're going to look back and you're going to go, ah, I can see your hand at work. I can see your sovereign hand working out things and using this situation, this the crisis, this thing, to bring about your purposes. Because the providence of God is not just about our personal comfort or gain. Did any of the things that happened to Joseph bring him comfort? Yet there was a bigger story in mind. Did any of the things that happened to Paul here bring him comfort? No, yet there's a bigger plan behind the scene, and that is God's providence. Paul is in prison in the Antonio Fortress. In the story of Acts, do you know of anyone else who was in that same prison? Peter. You may not know this, but Peter is in exactly the same prison that Paul finds himself in here. Now, we know the story of Peter and what happened there. So what happens for Peter? He gets released. The Lord moves miraculously, comes to Peter in a dream. Peter's not even awake. (laughs) An angel taps him on the shoulder. His chains fall away. The door swings open. The miraculous happens for Peter. Peter walks out free. Paul is in exactly the same situation that Peter found himself in. And so we might say, well, the will of God is for what to happen to Paul is for what happened to Peter. Surely the will of God is for an angel to come, tap him on the shoulder, change to fall away, open up, and then you can go to Rome. That's how it's going to be done, isn't it? (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) God miraculously opened the doors for Peter, 
And he providentially shut the doors, kept the doors shut for Paul. And God is acting in both situations. God is acting in both situations. Imagine for a second if we tried to um, form a theology or a doctrine solely on Peter's experience. Then we would say, well, when you're in trouble, you pray. Well, Peter wasn't even praying for a miracle and he got it. (laughs) Although the church was praying all night long. Okay, here's the doctrine. You pray for a miracle and God delivers you and you're set free and that's it. That's based on, it's in scripture, it's there. That's our understanding of the doctrine of the way God works. If, if that was our only scripture to use, then that was what we do. But Paul here is in exactly the same situation and he's praying and he's wondering what's going to happen and yet if God, if God gives you a miracle, then that's awesome. And we are the first to be praying for a miracle. Like let's, let's pray for a miracle. Let's pray for a revival. Like that's our first port of call. A miracle is awesome, but God giving you the endurance to go through suffering in order to bring about his, person, his, his purposes is also awesome. That is just as supernatural and just as miraculous. In fact, Paul himself said this when he wrote to the Philippians and he wrote this when he was in Rome. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He understood providence. That the door stayed shut for him in prison because God wanted to act behind the scenes in normal circumstances. And as a result, it has become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. All right. So what happens next is some some, some Jews realise that he's in prison and they come up with a plan. Oh, we know how we're going to get him. And they're going, to have, they're going to swear by an oath not to eat or drink for 40 days until they kill Paul. Now, that shows how dedicated they were and how much they hated Paul, right? But what a silly oath to make because obviously Paul doesn't die by their hand. So what, did they starve to death or did they just not they give up on their oath? <laughs> I mean, Jesus himself said, don't, don't swear by an oath like this. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But they, they swear by an oath and they, they, do, they, they want the commander to bring Paul across the courtyard to the Sanhedrin and to inquire about him. So, and, and while they're going to they're be in ambush and they're going to jump out and they're going to get him, so there's this plot to kill Paul by getting him out into the open. But from 16, when Paul's sister heard about this plot, he went, sorry, the son of Paul's sister, so Paul's nephew, he went to the barracks and told Paul, now, first of all, who's Paul's sister? Like, <laughs> what? Where, where'd she come from? Where'd Paul's 
nephew come from? Like, we've never heard about heard of these people before. They just so happened to be there. Paul's nephew just so happened to be there when the people were conspiracying against Paul. So maybe the nephew's there teaching and, and uh, like Paul, becoming a Pharisee and is, is studying. I don't, we don't know why he's there. We're, we're never going to know. But this is the providence of God. And so Paul called uh, the centurions and said, take this young man to the, the, to the commander. And so he's, he's led by the hand and they go to the commander. And the commander's going, right, I'm going to get some information about Paul. Finally, this, this young boy's going to give me some insight. I'm going to have a charge against him or I'm going to release him. I'm going to know what to do. And he tells him of the plot against him and the ambush that's going to happen. And so now we see the providence of God in action because Paul is in chains. He is not a free man. He is not in charge of where he goes and what he does. In his missionary journeys, he was like, I can go here. I'm going to travel there. I'm going to be released over a wall there. I'm, like he's, he's, in, he's in control of where he goes. Well, led by the Spirit. Now he's in prison and the Romans are going to pay for Paul to get to Rome. So the commander gets 470 people to take Paul to Caesarea, first of all, to have, to have, a, to have a, a trial. And then from there, Paul's going to say that he's going to go on to Rome. At the start, I said, do you have a story of providence in your life? where at the time perhaps you couldn't see the hand of God, but as you look back you go, wow, what an amazing gift that situation was. In my life application Bible, I just want to finish by, by reading this. It said, The Roman commander ordered Paul be sent to Caesarea, Jerusalem was a seat of, of Jewish government, but Caesarea was a Roman headquarters of the area. God works in amazing and amusing ways. God could have used any number of ways to get Paul to Caesarea, but he chose to use the Roman army to deliver Paul from his enemies. God's ways are not our ways. Ours are limited. His are not. Don't limit God by asking him to respond in your way. Don't limit God by asking him to respond in your way because when God intervenes, things work out much better than you could ever anticipate. And I've got so many stories in my life, as I'm sure you do, where at the time I'm thinking, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? This can't be your will. This can't be right. But then as I look back, I go, wow, God used that moment. He used that happening. He used that crisis to get me to this point, to grow me, to lead me, to care for me, to bring me to a group of people that he wanted me to be with. And the Lord wants to do the same in your life. The providence of God continues 
for each and every one of us. And I said before, you, you might be going through some really, really tough, tough stuff right now. I'm going to invite the, the band up. We're going to sing a song that ties in with the kids' spot. It said, um, the, even though the wind and waves crash around me, you're the one that steals them. But this song talks about the providence of God, that we will trust in him in all of our circumstances in all of our happenings. And as we sing this song, I want to just pray that in the same way that Jesus came and spoke to Paul and said, cheer up, Paul, that you would sense his presence here right now. That you would give your situation to him and say, here I am, I'm stuck. I've got nowhere to turn. I don't know what the answers are. But Lord, I'll trust in you. And I'll, I want to, we want to pray for a miracle. We want to pray for God's supernatural hand to come and for it to be obvious in a way that is beyond doubt that he's at work in your life. And that's awesome. But perhaps the Lord's saying, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Keep trusting. Keep hoping, keep trusting, and see what I'm going to do. See how I'm going to work this for your good and for for my glory in your life. Let's stand together. So, Lord, we come this morning with all sorts of situations. Lord, there are those I know among us with medical situations. There are those of us with strained family relationships. There are those of us who are facing uncertainty for our future. There are those of us who perhaps like Paul had hoped for something but have found that all of those hopes have come crashing down and we find ourselves in a prison. in the dark, with nowhere to turn, nowhere to get out. We feel, we feel like there's chains. Lord, as we sing this song, we pray for your presence to fall. We pray for those words that got Paul to stand up from his prison cell, that you would allow those same words to allow us to stand up in the truth of your gospel, that you love us that you care for us, that you have our back, that you are sovereign over all creation and that even the wind and waves obey you. So come, Lord Jesus, we offer these situations to you. Come, speak. Spirit, have your way amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, we can trust in only You, Creator of heaven and earth, the stiller of our seas, the storms in our life. Father, help us to trust in You, in Your providence, in Your goodness, in Your faithfulness to each of us. Soften our hearts, Lord. And help us to trust you, that you are who you say you are, and you'll do what you say you'll do. We thank you for your word that we can look back at these stories and accounts and testimonies of your goodness. Lord, help us to look back, take the time to look back on our own lives and see your hand at work and say, thank you, Lord. And because of that, I trust you. Thank you that you will never let us down. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, can I encourage you this morning that this isn't the end of the service. If you've got things that you want to talk about with the Lord, there are so many beautiful people here who you can say, hey, can I just pray with you? Give your kids cards to somebody else and they can go pick up your kids and you can spend some time with the Lord. This is an open area here. We've also got a prayer room at the back and people who are wanting to stay and to invest time in you and to say, let's pray together and let's watch God work. I want to come and chat with you again next week and let's see what God's been doing in your life because that's what a church family does. That's what we're here for. So I just encourage you to spend that time with the Lord, the stuff that He's got on your heart. It's there for a reason. And we in the leadership team continue to pray for you this week that you'll know God's goodness. You'll know God's providence. You'll know God's faithfulness each day this week in your workplace, in your family, that as you step out into the rest of your lives, that you will know that He is good and He loves you so, so much. So the Lord bless you and keep you. And we can't wait to see you next week at our all-in service.